Vivam. I will live. The final word of Ovid's Metamorphoses, proclaiming the poet's hope that he will continue to be known through his great work. It's a prediction that of course turns out to be true, as we're still reading and influenced by the Metamorphoses 2,000 years after it was written. In his talk, Simona Martorana helps us to appreciate why the cast of mythical characters that inhabit the Metamorphoses still survive in our imagination and culture today. This podcast is brought to you by the Department of English Studies at Durham University. It was recorded during our series of late summer lectures in 2018. Basically, I'm going to try to explain why it makes sense to speak about, to talk about the metamorphosis now and nowadays and in contemporary societies. So the metamorphoses were written more than 2000 years ago. So why should they be still relevant to our society? And then, of course, I'm going to try to explain why beginnings and endings, which was the topic of this series of this year, is relevant to the metamorphosis. So let's start with a bit of context. What are the metamorphoses? So basically the metamorphoses are an ensemble of tales, of mythological tales. They, they've been said to be the biggest repository for classical myths, which means Greek and Latin myths. So basically in this book, you have more than 250 stories. And basically, what I'm going to do is telling a couple of these stories. When you talk about the metamorphosis, this book is quite, is quite huge. You can talk about many things. A thing I would like to focus in this lecture, or if you want a kind of hermeneutical category or approach, is narratology. Now, basically, narratology means the way in which a narration is told. And as it was stated by Barchiesi, who is an Ovidian scholar, that is a person studying basically Ovid, metamorphosis can be useful to understand issues related to narratology also in relation to modern or contemporary works. Because, and we are coming to the second point, the way in which these stories are told in the metamorphosis. Basically, the peculiarity of the way in which the stories are told is that there is no interruption between a story and the other. And, we, and here we come to the beginnings and endings. And I put a question mark because actually I'm going to argue that in this work, there are no beginnings and endings, or, if you want, beginnings and endings are not very well defined. Now, basically what happens here is that uh, a story starts before the previous one is over. So, I'm not saying that this work has no distinction inside it, because actually it's divided into 15 books. But I will show you. First book is over, second book starts. However, the myth told here, which is the myth of Phaeton, is not uh, interrupted here, but continues here. And here I'm not, I'm not going <laughs> to, to see where it finishes, but 
Basically, if the, the distinction between books exists, there is no interruption in the storytelling. And I will show you in a bit with a couple of examples. But since we are talking about beginnings and endings, let's look at the actual beginning of the whole work. So this is the only case in which I pasted the Latin text. And there is a reason for this. But I'm going to read the English, of course. So I want to speak about bodies changed into new forms. Here is the author, is Ovid speaking. You gods, since you are the ones who alter this and all other things, inspire my attempt and spin out a continuous thread of words from the world's first origins to my own time. Now, we have the subject of the work, which is bodies changed into new forms, which is uh, in nova corpora, beginning of first and second line. This is very usual in Latin to find an adjective which is very far away from the substantive. Nova is new and corpora is bodies. And then we have uh, Fertanimus, mutatas, okay, Dickere, don't look at that, mutatas formas. Now, mutatas formans, formas, sorry, means literally mutated forms or changed forms. Now, changed forms is the Latin translation of the Greek metamorphosis. This is the title of the work, and this is here in the first line of the work. Then there is an invocation to the gods, please help me, please Help me to do what? Spin out, we are at the fourth line, spin out a continuous thread of words. So basically Ovid is saying that uh, what I was saying before, his narration is not interrupted. So continuous thread of words is the Latin last line of the Latin, perpetuum carmen, which means not only continuous poem, if you want, or poetry, but means also everlasting poetry. And bear this in mind, because we will come back at the end of this lecture. So, continuous thread of words. From the words first origins to my own time. So Ovid was very ambitious. Basically, he's starting the, it's, his narration with the origin of the universe. And then, let's say that he will finish it at his own time. Now, you are probably thinking, okay, but this is a beginning, right? Yes, in a way, this is a beginning. But the myths, actually, which are contained in this book, and people, scholars, if you want, agree on this, were not invented by Ovid. Ovid, basically, was drawing these myths from other previous sources, which possibly most of them are not extant. These other previous sources were drawing this myth from other previous sources, which possibly were drawing these myths, these same myths, from folk tales or a tradition that at some point was written down. And this is also the way in which Odyssey and Iliad basically were born, in a similar way, let's say, broadly speaking. And 
So the point is not that this book, the myths in this book are new. They are probably presented in an innovative way. And of course, as I mentioned to you, here we have the highest concentration of Greek and Latin myths. So in a way, this is a beginning, but it's also a continuation from the previous tradition. Ovid is putting this uh, work into dialogue with what exist was existing before him. So, after having talked about the supposed beginning of the metamorphosis, let's look at a couple of examples. I would like to show you the way in which usually myths begins and ends within the metamorphosis. Now, this is one of the first myths in the metamorphosis, uh, which is one of the most famous, and this basically the one which inspired this sculpture, which is uh, also on the advertisement of this lecture, if I'm not wrong, <laughs> and is uh, basically Apollo, who has just caught Daphne, and Daphne is, if you see, is changing into a plant. So, let's read the beginning of this myth. Apollo's first law was Daphne, daughter of Peneus, and no true chance, but because of Cupid's fierce anger. Recently, the Delian god, another name for Apollo, exulting at his victory over the serpent, had seen him bending his tiny strong bow and said, Impudent boy, what are you doing with a man's weapons? Venus' son replied, you may eat every other thing, Phoebus, Apollo. They were, they, they, they were using different names for the same person, basically for the same god. But my bow will strike you to the degree that all living creatures are less than gods. By the degree is your glory less than mine. So, what's going on here? Basically, we have Apollo, who is a god. In the, first, uh, in the first line, we have also Daphne, which is the other character of this myth. But then, then we have Peneus, the father of Daphne, and then this serpent. Basically, this serpent is linked to the previous myth, which was another myth related to Apollo, but was related to one of the first of Apollo's almighty deeds. Now, Apollo, when was young, don't ask me how a god can be young, because I don't know, there is literature about this, but I don't know. So when Apollo was young, one of the, of the first things he did was defeating this huge serpent, which was basically was very huge, was covering, you know, kilometers and kilometers of land. So it was a kind of dragon. I don't know how you can imagine it. Basically, when I read for the first time this passage, I imagined it as Harry Potter's basilisk. So if you are you know, familiar with Harry Potter, it's still a good way to imagine this serpent. So basically, he was very proud because he had defeated this serpent with his bow, with an arrow. Once again, how you can defeat this beast with an arrow? I don't know. So basically, at some point, very proud, he bumped into Cupid. Now, Cupid is this young boy running around or flying around with wings, which is, who is the god of love. 
So basically, Cupid is also characterized by a bow and by arrows, which are, however, arrows of law. So when he pierces with these arrows, people fall in love with other people. So basically, Apollo started mocking him, saying, what, would, what do you want to do with these things? And Cupid answers, you will see what I can do with these things. So you can see that the trade union, the link, between a myth and the other is basically in this case is the serpent so Ovid before this passage of course I couldn't pass all the text uh, to, on the slide was talking about Apollo and he was, he was telling how Apollo defeated the serpent and then suddenly he's saying you know Apollo defeated the serpent and then Apollo's first love and this is the way in which basically Ovid links uh, the previous meet to the following one, which once again doesn't, uh, uh, this way, doesn't make, uh, you know, the borders between a myth and the other very clear. There is a kind of continuation. But uh, let's see how basically the myth uh, ends. So, Apollo fell in love with Daphne. Uh, it was pierced by Mm, Cupid's uh, arrow of love and Cupid at the same time threw uh, her, an arrow of hate to Daphne of course so Daphne uh, basically rejected him but and Apollo starts following him Daphne is a nymph so he's, uh, she's running through the woods and at some point Apollo is about to catch her at this point Daphne invokes her father asking him for help so, Daphne's father changes her into a plant. This plant is the laurel. Now, Apollo, of course, is not so happy, but since he was in love with Daphne, he chooses the laurel as his own symbol. And he says, As I, with my hair that is never cut, am eternally youthful, so you, with your evergreen leaves, are for glory and praise everlasting. So, you can see that basically here there is something, let's learn something from this lecture, there is something called etiology. This is when a myth explains why things are as they are. So, according to Ovid, the laurel, I don't know, I suppose you are familiar with the laurel, is evergreen because Apollo's haircut is always abundant and always, you know, uncropped. So, the laurel is always is, is evergreen. So the laurel is still a symbol of, you know, uh, victory, a symbol of praise. And I will tell you something. In Italy, we still use the laurel crown when we get the master degree. And for this reason, in Italy, we say that we are, when we are graduated, we say that we are laureati. And laureati is a word from laurel, laurus in Latin. So it's still, it's still you know, in a way, still here. Apollo the healer had done the laurel bowed her newly made branches and seemed to shake her leafy crown like a head giving consent. Now you see that there is some kind of personality still in this laurel. The transformation is not completely over. You can look at the, the pronouns uh, er and there again. So it's a kind of girlish laurel. There is a grove in Ammonia, closed in on every side by wooded cliffs. They call it Tempe, through it the river Pinus rolls. Uh, Pinus is the father of Dan Daphne. 
with foaming waters out of the roots of Pindos. Here, the rivers of his own country first met, unsure whether to console with or celebrate Daphne's father. What's going on here? Basically, we are talking again about Daphne's father, but to say that Daphne's, Daphne's father was, was sad, so the, Daphne's father is a river god. So basically what is going to happen is that all the other rivers god uh, are going to visit him. Here Ovid is quite ironical, they were unsure whether to console or celebrate, because of course Pinius has just lost his daughter, but his daughter has received a great, a great honor, because she became a plant but the symbol of a great, you know, god, Apollo. So basically there is this kind of uh, gathering, waterly gathering between, you know, rivers. But in the following uh, lines, Ovid says, there is only one river lacking. This river is Ainacus. Ainacus was lacking because he was very sad, because he has just, he, he has just missed his own daughter, Ayo. Now, you can check. The following myth is Ayo and Jupiter. Now, the trade union, once again, the link between a myth and the other is still, you know, is not, is a link and the endings and the beginnings, the ending and the beginning are not well defined. I mean, we see a separation here between consent and then, you know, there is the other paragraph, there is, but this is a modern convention. This is uh, something done by the modern editor. It's not something done by the poet, possibly. So basically the only, Ovid is not saying, okay, that's all folks, Apollo and Daphne is over, now starts another myth. No, there is a grove in ammonia. And there is still Pinius, who, was the fa who is the father of Daphne, so we have still something, it's like, you know, the metamorphosis from a myth to the other, the continuation. So in this case, the link are the two fathers, Pinius and the other river god, Ainacus. So this was the first example. Let's look at another example, which is from book three. So, uh, still quite at the beginning of the metamorphosis, and this is the myth of Echo and Narcissus. Now, let's read the beginning. Famous throughout all the Ionian cities, Tiresias gave faultless answers to people who consulted him. Daskiliriope, the Naiad, was the first to test the truth and the accuracy of his words whom once the river god Cephisus clasped in his, in his winding streams and took by force under the waves. Basically, this river raped this nymph. This loveliest of nymphs gave birth at full term to a child, whom, even then, one could fall in love with, called Narcissus. Okay, this is the myth of Econ of of Narcissus, and this is the beginning. But we have Narcissus only at the end of the myth. Before that, we have uh, the mother of Narcissus, Lariope, and before that, we have this guy, this guy, Tiresias. Now, who was Tiresias? Tiresias is the previous myth, the myth which comes before this, and. Tiresias, I will tell this myth to explain why Tiresias is relevant to the following myth, Tiresias was a shepherd. Now, for many reasons, he changed, at some point, into a woman. 
after seven years, Tiresias changed back into a man. So Tiresias underwent this kind of metamorphosis. At some point, two gods, Jupiter and Juno, Jupiter and Juno are, let's say, the father of the gods and the mother of the gods, or if you want, the king of the gods and the queen of the gods, if you feel more, comfor more comfortable with uh, monarchy and royal stuff here. Basically, they were discussing. They are gods, they don't have anything to do, and they are discussing or debating about a thing. Whether men or women take more pleasure from sexual intercourse. I'm sorry, but this was the topic of the discussion. Now, of course, they are thinking, well, let's ask Theresias. For, for sure he will know because he was a woman and then he came back to be a man, right? So they asked Theresias. Theresias answered that women take more pleasure from sexual intercourse and Juno got angry and made him blind. Now Jupiter had mercy of him and gave him another kind of sight, that is the sight of the future. He became the most famous seer in the ancient world. Now, after this meet, here we are. Ovid is telling another story, that is the first prophecy of Tiresias. This first prophecy, so the, the trade union basically, the frame is Tiresias, so Tiresias is giving prophecies. One of these prophecies is about Narcissus. Basically, Narcissus was the most beautiful young boy in the world. And he was going hunting, and at some point, a nymph, another nymph, saw him and fell in love with him. This nymph was Echo. And here, in the Latin text, we have a myth within a myth. Because Ovid is saying, Echo, this nymph, oh, Sorry, I should tell you who Echo was. Echo, before, before meeting Narcissus, was a very talkative and loquacious nymph. But she kept in conversations, Juno, once again Juno, while Jupiter, her supposed, uh, her supposed husband, was having sexual affairs with other nymphs. So, when Juno remarked this, she got angry once again and made Echo almost completely speechless. With, a, with only an exception, and the exception is that she, of course, was able to repeat the last words of each sentence. And here we are, the Echo. This is another etiology, right? So, Echo, in a way, <laughs> manages to show herself and to show the fact that she is in love with Narcissus to Narcissus himself. But Narcissus doesn't want her, so she goes away. And at some point, when he is in the woods, he bumps into a pool of water. In this pool of water, he looks at his own image, which is reflected, you know, by the surface. And since he basically is so beautiful, he fell in love with himself and tries to catch his own image. In trying to catch his own image, he falls into the pool of water, and apparently he is not able to swim, and he dies. And then his sisters of Narcissus, the Naiads, lamented and let down the hair for their brother. And the Dryads lamented, echo re-echoed their laments. 
And now they were preparing the funeral pyre, the quivering torches and the beer, but there was nobody. They came upon a flower instead of its body with white petals surrounding a yellow vert, that is the Narcissus. When all this became known, it spread the prophet's name, fame through the cities of Achaia and his reputation was high. Silpintheus, the son of Icion, in scorn of the gods, alone amongst all of them, rejected the sea. So, once again, we have, uh, we have Tiresias. So, Tiresias is the frame in which some meets, Narcissus meets, the following one, which, is, which will be Pintheus, are enclosed. So, this is another kind of transition between a myth and the other. And once again, we have still a continuation. So, after, you know, having shown you how the transitions between a myth and the other work, I will move to the ending of the work. Now, once again, let's read this ending, this supposed ending. We have Ovid speaking here, the author, who says, now I have finished my work, which nothing can ever destroy. No Jupiter's wrath, nor, fra nor fire's word, nor devouring time. The day which has power over nothing except this body of mine may come when it will, and then the uncertain span of my life. Yet the best part of me will be born, immortal, beyond the distant stars. Wherever Rome's influence extends over the lands it has civilized, I will be spoken on people's lips. So, basically Ovid is saying, I will be biologically dead, but in a way, I will survive, because my body will be gone, but the message enclosing my work, in a way, will survive. And he was right, because we are talking now about this work written 2,000 years ago. So. You see, the book is limited. I can, you know, hold it in my end, but in a way, its message is not over. And when Ovid says, uh, yeah, I will be mortal, of course, in a way, he is, because he's still here, talking with us. And Rome's influence extends, wherever Rome's influence extends, of course, this was imperialistic, because Ovid was living under the Roman Empire. But if by Rome's influence, uh, we understand Rome's cultural influence, uh, which is Latin literature, in a way he was right even there. And he is on people's lips, because I'm talking about him. Now, I, I, I told you that this is the ending of the metamorphosis, but in a way I was uh, lying, because uh, it still lacks of one line and one half. So, basically, I will show you later, in the very conclusion of this lecture. This is, let's say, almost the ending. And uh, it's not, uh, I mean, once again, it's not uh, an actual ending. It's still connected uh, with our speech, with our discourse. And uh, this immortality, in this case, is gained by Ovid through his storytelling, through his writing. And I put here a quote from Walter Benjamin, which is, memory is the muse-derived element of the epic art, and this is epic, in a broader sense and encompasses its varieties. In the first place among these is the one practiced by the storyteller. It starts the web, which all stories together form in the end. 
One ties to the next, as the great storytellers, particularly the oriental ones, have always readily shown. In each of them, there is a Sherazad who thinks of a fresh story whenever her taste comes to a stop. Basically, Ovid is a storyteller, and as a storyteller, he tells stories, he keeps his memory still alive. And uh, you see that uh, stories here are compared to a web. And we, in one of the first, first slides I show you, we were talking about a continuous thread of words. So the kind of, ima of imaging is the same. Now, I named Sherazad, and I, because Sherazad, Ovid is a storyteller, she is the storyteller par excellence. Because Sherazad was one of those virgins who were kidnapped by this Arabian prince. Now, this Arabian prince had a horrible habit that was killing each of these virgins after having had sexual intercourse with them. Shazada Waver starts during the night, during this first night, starts telling a story to the prince without ending it. And the prince is curious and he comes back, he doesn't want her to be killed. He comes, back, he, he comes back the following night, and the following night happens the same. Sherazad finishes the story and starts the, the, the other one, you see, without uh, an actual, you know, uh, an actual separation between stories. And this goes on for 1001 nights, which is, of course, the title of the collection of the story. So Sherazad is the quintessential narrator, is the quintessential storyteller, because not only she keeps her work alive in the future and so on, but she keeps herself alive, actually, through storytelling. So, when I was preparing this lecture, I was doing some readings. So let's connect this thing of the storytelling with another aspect. I was doing some philosophical readings. So I was reading about posthuman philosophy. Now, in a way, posthuman theory is very, you know, can apply to this concept. Because posthuman theory basically says that uh, human beings have not to be considered as individuals who at some point they die and there is, you know, and there is nothing then. But they have to be considered in a wider discourse. They are connected with a wider discourse in, including nature as in a sort of pantheistic view. So the subject enters this discourse and in a way is in a kind of you know, continuous dialogue with this, with the universe. Now, a way in which the subject is in a continuous dialogue with the universe is exactly by writing, by literature. And this is a passage from Deleuze, who is one of the most important and most famous uh, theorists uh, um, of uh, posthuman philosophy, posthuman thought. Writing does not have an end in itself, simply because life is not something personal, or rather, the aim of writing is to lift life to the state of an impersonal force. Now, I told you that this was the loose, and this was, but I quoted the loose from another book, which is Rosie Bredotti's Metamorphosis. So once again, even though here Metamorphosis is used for a philosophical book, she could have called their book, titled their book, Transformations, because this is the theory of becoming. But she named their book, titled their book, Metamorphosis. And also Kafka will remember Metamorphosis. Also, you know, in a more implied way, other authors will remember Ovid. So, in a way, there is a dialogue going on here.
Now, let's go to the conclusion, at least, of this lecture. <laughs> we were saying, wherever Rome's influence extends over the lands it has civilized, I will be spoken on people's lips. And, this is the actual ending, famous through all the ages, if there is truth in poets' prophecies, we one, I shall live. That in a way, as I was trying to argue, it's not an actual ending. In a way, I was saying, he's still alive through his literature and through his works. So, the point is that when I was preparing this lecture, I was thinking, I'm going to talk about beginnings and endings in the metamorphosis. To say that there are no beginnings and endings in the metamorphosis, because this was my point, right? But in a way, now, in this last day, so never think about what you're saying in the last days before you, you, you have the talk. In these last days, I've been starting thinking that maybe the thing, the point, is that since I'm I started to speak about these things, I've started to talk about Ovid, and I will start tomorrow to, to work on Ovid and to read Ovid again. And I don't know, people somewhere in the world where Rome extends its, its influence would talk about Ovid. Uh, I think that maybe the point is not that there are no beginnings and endings, but maybe there are too many beginnings and endings. But this is really up to you. Thank you for your attention. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. If you would like to comment on the podcast you have just listened to, or if you want to download more of our podcasts, visit our blog at www.readdurhamenglish.wordpress.com.